Hey there, welcome back listeners to our latest episode of the Room and Room Podcasts. So hey, this is our 31st episode and those of you that have tuned into some of our earlier ones, you'll know very well that this is actually a series of podcasts brought to you by, uh, I guess, an offshoot from the Facebook group, The Room and Room, proudly supported by PGG Rights and Seeds. My name's Charlotte Westwood. I'm a vet and a nutritionist working sort of in the sheep, beef, dairy and deer space here in Lincoln, Canterbury in New Zealand. Now, this episode is just one of a heap of different podcasts that have covered a wide range of topics so far. But thanks to feedback from all of you, we've decided to spend two podcasts looking at all things to do with drying off of dairy cows. If you've not already tuned in, in part one of our two-part series, in other words, it was episode 30, we did a bit of a scene set firstly around um, why does a cow and her udder need a well-deserved holiday away from the milking shed and why the udder particularly needs a rest and recuperation period. We covered around how it's really good to do a brainstorm about what a good dry-off would look to you in the perfect world, and then from there you can then uh, step through the processes around dry-off to hopefully achieve your what does good look like for both yourself and for your cows. And in that first podcast, we also talked about whether it's appropriate to simply stop milking cows from a milking frequency point of view, abrupt dry off in other words, or if you're on twice a day milking frequency still prior to drying off, whether there's some benefits for higher producing cows to spend a short period on once a day milking. But there's a few sort of buyers beware caveats around that one that you can talk to your vet about, including what your somatic cell count's doing heading into dry off because they may spike if we go once a day. And of course, what the history has been through lactation around clinical mastitis and also whether um, your vet's going to recommend some selective use of dry cow therapy and or internal teat sealant. So that decision rests very much with your vet during your dry cow consult that farms now do routinely here in New Zealand. But yeah, that was episode one. Uh, if that aspect around drying off is of interest to you and you've come straight to a nutrition one, maybe have a listen to part one. But yeah, in the meantime, part two of this two-part series, we're going to focus entirely on the nutritional things to think about to try uh, and help our cows and the herd achieve what good looks like that we covered uh, around brainstorming what good looks like for, for your dry cow period. And the aim around the nutrition, I guess, is to assist our cows to our very best capabilities to drop down their milk secretions potentially before um, and certainly during and after the cessation of milking. So that's what uh, episode 31 is going to be about. We mentioned briefly in the previous episode or episode 30 that the overall aim of changing the diet of our cows from one that supports lactation instead to one that supports the dry-off process is kind of in a nutshell to reduce the supply of nutrients, specifically glucose, which is the precursor or building block for the milk sugar lactose, but also amino acids supply to the udder that the clever secretory cells then turn into milk protein. And of course, our fatty acids flowing around in the blood that again, clever milk secretory cells manufacture into milk fat. And about half of our milk fat comes from fatty acids in the blood. And then the other half of our milk fat comes from preformed dietary lipids or fats arriving at the other two. So Whichever way, by reducing overall dietary supply of these nutrients, milk secretion should, in the ideal world, start to slow down. Look, changing the diet of cows by reducing intake of, of all of these various nutrients, you know, energy, maybe also protein, is at an international level considered by far the most important way to help cows to dry off. But also, and as we mentioned in episode 30, was that for high producing twice a day milk cows in late lactation, often the nutritional approach to dry off is combined with 
a reduction in milking frequency from twice a day to once a day milking. It would appear that the combination of uh, both of those approaches, nutrition manipulation and also reduced milking frequency, collectively works synergistically to help dry cows off. So anyway, this is supposed to be about nutrition, so back on track, Charlotte. What's the range of nutritional strategies available to us to help our cows dry off? Well, like it is for anything in life, we can say it depends. So, look, strategies from a practical point of view depend on a whole range of factors specific to your place. Now, that could be depending on the current per cow milk production as you uh, head close to drying off, and and we'll come back to that. And on, but also on, it's it's to do also with a range of practical things on farm, including the current types and amounts of feed that you have on hand, whether that's silages, hay, straw, your average pasture cover, also your personal ambitions that you have for best practice preservation of cow body condition score through dry off. And in turn, that will probably depend on what the cow average uh, cow body condition score is at the moment on cows to be dried off. And also, assuming you've done your consultation with your vet pre-dry off and what your vet has recommended to you around dry off supportive therapies, specifically, I guess we're talking about here around use that well, now it's no longer the blanket use of dry cow therapy, but instead it's the selective use of dry cow therapy where only a, a proportion of cows receive uh, dry cow antibiotics. Also, your vet has probably made some really good decisions for you around uh, use of internal teat sealants and the like. And as we always say, where we are to be tying into the vet side of things is that this podcast will never, ever replace any advice provided directly to you by your very own veterinarian. So whilst we'll acknowledge blanket dry cow therapy in New Zealand is no longer the done thing and instead selective dry cow therapy is the thing will leave that very much in the domain of your vet. Decisions around drying off. In the first of these, the two-part series around drying cows off, we talked about how decision processes around drying off is very much to do with how much milk or milk solids the cows are producing as you head into dry off. When we start to integrate how much are the cows producing into nutritional decisions, this, I guess, is the first and the easiest step of the lot from a nutritional point of view. If your cows are well on the way to drying themselves off, they're still in milk, but they're not producing a lot of milk at all, let's say, you know, somewhere less than 10 litres, and most definitely if they're only doing like uh, 5 litres per cow per day, to be honest, they're well on track to drying themselves off anyway. So the, the take-home recommendation for very low-producing cows is not even to start to reduce nutrient supply to them before dry-off. But you know what? Actually, we're going to abruptly stop milking them. We're not going to do anything in terms of feeding them differently before dry-off. We're just going to suddenly stop milking them. And we're going to then hold them at maintenance levels of feed for anywhere for one to two weeks after dry-off. So for these very low-producing, pretty well-dried-off cows all by themselves, abruptly dry-off, hold them at maintenance for one to two weeks, job done. It's unlikely that those cows will continue to drip milk and have wide-open teat canals anyway, so the risk of environmental pathogens, including streptomyberis, uh, infecting those cows will not be as high as for higher-producing cows that are still pouring a lot of milk out through the dry-off process. So as a proportion of your cows or maybe your whole herd if it's been a tough autumn maybe drought or whatever and you're not producing a lot of milk just just abruptly dry off um, and then feed the maintenance levels for one to two weeks now what about on the other hand what if you've had an amazing autumn your cows are still producing a lot of milk I suppose you define what's a lot well internationally lots of milk um, can be anywhere from 
12 to 15 to 18 litres, depending on all of the different scientific literature out there. But let's say in the New Zealand sense, 10 to 12 litres or more for seasonally calving cows heading into autumn from spring calving. We've already talked a lot about high producing cows and decisions around whether you drop them from twice a day milking to once a day milking or whatever. So we'll leave that point and you go back to episode 30 if you want to talk about it. But what we are going to do now is talk about how we can nutritionally help our higher producing cows to start to do things to their diet in the days before we actually plan to dry them off. So let's look at these cows. Your girls are still pumping milk at, you know, 10 or 12 or more litres per cow per day. Now, unlike those cows that are already drying themselves off, these cows are obviously still quite good genetics. They're still pretty well prepared to put milk in the vat for you, and they're probably going to need some gentle enticement from a nutritional point of view to wind them down before we plan to dry them off. So that might be starting a week or even 10 days before dry off where we start to change the diet from one capable of supporting and driving lactation instead to one that uh, more closely mimics what the cow's probably going to be eating through the dry-off period. In terms of the actual amounts of feed on offer for lactating versus dry cows and then stepping them down from lactating diets to dry-off diets, Look, there's a range of factors that are going to influence that. It's going to depend on the average live weight of your cows, um, depends on how much you're trying to feed to put condition on them, depends on how far they're walking, depends on uh, fat and protein tests, lots of other factors. So this is by no means prescriptive. And again, you can work through these numbers either yourself or, of course, looking at the wide range of resources available Dairy and Z facts and figures. My goodness, there's a lot of resources out there. And if you're not so keen on doing a mini feed budget through the dry-off period yourself, just, just ask for some help. You know, um, chances are your vet will offer that as part of the dry-off consult. Your local farm consultant who may be doing a pre-dry-off farm visit, or you may have a nutritionist who's happy to help you with all of that. Essentially, from the nutritional point of view, Smart Sam, which is the New Zealand-based program that's all about managing uh, everything from uh, mastitis prevention, somatic silk out management, all those things. Smart Sam, otherwise known as the Sam plan for those of us older ones that have been around for a while, that's a New Zealand program that has a lot of good information to help you around drying off and where some of the recommendations that we're talking about have come from. Now, for those of you listening in from Australia, you'll see very similar messaging from Countdown Down Under to Smart Sam from here in New Zealand around that the predominant approach to the nutritional manipulation of cows through dry-off is to reduce dietary nutrients, energy and protein to help slow down high-producing cows during that last week to 10 days before dry-off. From the Australian point of view where the Australian industry on average feeds a lot more concentrates, so that might be cereal, grain, canola meal, countdown done under advises from a pre-dry-off process that we need to reduce or completely stop the amount of concentrate feeding, so that's protein meals, that's cereal grains, uh, maybe starch-containing byproducts through the shed or maybe through the wagon on the, the feed pad as, as a partial mix ration, and you need to stop that a week or so before dry-off. This is equally applicable for us here in New Zealand, but on average, we Kiwis in late lactation feed a lot less concentrate in late lactation. Um, often we're only feeding some, some uh, rolled barley, some uh, kibbled maize, you know, maybe a bit of palm kernel. I guess when uh, Countdown Done Under say to stop or reduce, greatly reduce feeding concentrate, that equally applies both sides of the Tasman for New Zealand and Australia, depending on which side of the Tasman you're on. But yeah, essentially we're taking the starchy stuff out, ideally, or in the case of Australians, taking the protein out because starch and protein drives milk production. So if you think about it, going back to what the udder is looking for to continue to produce high volumes of milk, it's looking for blood glucose because blood glucose reaches the udder, the glucose and galactose as another monosaccharide is joined together to make lactose in the udder and lactose in turn drives the volume of milk produced. So drying off when we've got high starch feeds in the diet and ample protein, 
will maintain blood glucose at good levels, will maintain therefore the building blocks to make milk lactose and therefore will keep the volume of milk up when we're ironically trying to drop them down. So taking concentrates out, particularly protein and starch containing concentrates, is a really good sense for either side of the Tasman in terms of in-shed feeding systems. So yeah, that's, um, that's very much about taking concentrates out. The only comment will be from the practicality point of view, and some of you will be saying exactly this, is that what do cows do when we take their concentrates away from in-shed feeding system? They, in the New Zealand terminology, pack a sad, they pout, they sulk, and this may impact cow flow through the shed, which is just not what you need when you're thinking about winding down the dry-off. So you may want to leave a small amount of, of concentrate in the shed purely for cow flow reasons, and hopefully your in-shed feeding system is capable of winding down to a very tiny amount, maybe 30, 40, 50 grams of, of grain per milking. So whatever's going to work for you. So that's concentrate in the shed. What about the total amount of feed on offer before, through and after dry-off? We've said several times now, just parroting on now, about it's very much about reducing the amounts of nutrients on offer, specifically energy and protein, but also fat, relative to the amount of nutrients that were being fed as a milking cow ration before you started the dry-off process. So Reducing the total amount of nutrients reaching the udder can be approached in one of two different ways. Firstly, we either offer cows fewer kilos dry matter of feed per day. So in other words, the kilograms, the tonnage of feed offered every day to a herd is reduced. Then, of course, the, the second approach to this is that we still offer cows a whole heap to eat so they're pretty feeling pretty full from physical room and fill, but we make sure that the feed isn't as nutrient-dense as the feeds that the cows were enjoying as lactating cows before dry-off. So that's, I guess, the two approaches to this, and sometimes you can use a combination of these two approaches. I guess the first approach around offering less feed, again, we've already touched on this, is it's very much feed budget driven. You can calculate how much the cows need for the current production versus perhaps, you know, aiming for production of maybe half the amount of milk compared to what they're doing today. And you can do that in a factorial calculation process using any number of resources out on the internet around how much feed a cow needs. Or... As I said, just get your rural professional, your vet consultant or nutritionist to help you just do a little partial feed budget to work out the amount of feed on offer you may need to drop to encourage cows to dry off. There's obviously another approach um, to reducing the amount of nutrients ultimately reaching the udder, which of course is reducing the nutrient density of the diet, but continually fully feeding cows, but just with a low nutrient density range or combination of feeds. So examples of suitable dry-off feeds, you'll all have your own favourites that you rely on to do this. But for example, this may be cereal or ryegrass straw. We'll talk a bit more about that shortly. Or maybe some poorer quality baleage, provided that baleage isn't rotten, stinky, mouldy stuff. And again, we'll, we'll talk more about this and the perils of doing that. I'm sure it's common sense why you wouldn't do that, but we'll just highlight some of the animal health concerns with that. And also a range of other poor quality feeds out there. You may have uh, maize silage that's got no starch in it because it was affected by drought or frosting. whole range of different feeds out there and, and we're only limited by our imagination. So in terms of this approach of reduced nutrient density, I guess it's a, it's a bit of a similar approach for any of us that have tried to do a a, a crash diet, um, you know, trying to lose a bit of weight for a special day or whatever, but it's like us eating salad all day, every day. If you eat a, a head of lettuce for dinner, I guess that makes us for a short period of time feel quite physically full. Might make us feel physically ill eating a whole head of lettuce. But essentially what we're filling up with, with salad all day is that we're eating, in the case of salad, a lot of water and not a lot of nutrients per bite. So I guess feeding cows with a low nutrient-dense feed isn't so much filling them up with water in that feed, but rather we're filling them up with a lot of maybe poorly digestible NDF, neutral detergent fibre. And so it's filling the rumen up, it's stretching the rumen full, and 
in a similar but not identical principle to our salads when we're crash um, dieting is essentially looking for a degree of what we call satiety or reducing the hunger rather than just simply underfeeding cows to encourage dry off. It is important to note that from a cow welfare point of view, scientists that have looked at measures of cow welfare through dry off Although feeding low energy dense feeds like poor quality baleage and silage and all that is better than underfeeding cows outright, just just feeding them a whole lot less feed, cows must be a little bit like us with a, f- a full belly of water from our salad. They must still have some degree of hunger simply because from a satiety point of view at the level of the brain based on hormones that measure whether um, there's enough nutrients coming in. Cows can sometimes still appear with some degree of hunger through dry off using low energy dense feeds. So it's better than completely underfeeding cows, but there will be a little bit of an element of a little bit of hunger in some situations through dry off if we rely on underfeeding and uh, low nutrient dense feeds. So it's not perfect, but it's better than straight out underfeeding cows. So that's the broad guidelines, I guess, for drying cows off based on either the amount of feed on offer and aiming to reduce the amount of feed on offer as as we would do in a diet, combined with reduced quality, or in other words, poorer nutrient density of the feeds on offer. And usually we're looking at a combination of both. Depends on your feed budget and uh, how much we're needing to dry cows off, like whether they're producing a lot of milk or not much at all. Lots of moving parts. So... Yeah, we're thinking that all of you are likely going to be drying off with this combined approach of less feed and or less nutrient dense feed. I guess there's a this is where we have some unintended consequences of drying off that you'll all be very familiar with. So when we reduce the amount of dry matter on offer to cows through dry off and or we fill them up with some rougher, higher fibre, low nutrient density feeds, we can have some issues around loss of body condition score. Now this is particularly for cows of uh, superior genetic merit. In other words, they just want, they're honest cows, they just want to keep producing milk for you and overflow the vat and they're not understanding that actually want them to have a holiday and to dry off please. So some of these girls will have quite a strong drive to continue to produce milk despite a lot of our best efforts around reducing total nutrients on offer either through reduced feed and also low nutrient density feed. And of course, the ongoing production of milk doesn't come from thin air. If a cow isn't eating enough because we're we're really sincerely encouraging her to eat fewer nutrients so that the udder doesn't have as many nutrients to make milk, what are these cows going to do? These honest, high genetic merit cows, they're going to mobilise some body condition to supply both the energy and protein to support ongoing lactation despite our best efforts. So clearly this is not ideal for a whole range of reasons. No one, I mean it's it's awful seeing your cows drop in condition, particularly if you've lovingly fed them very, very well in lactation to get them into good uh, order and clearly combined with you know the dry off process and, and cows maybe being a bit hungry, cows are losing condition, can look a bit rough coated and no one likes to see that, whether um, us working with, with cows and from a wealthy point of view, it's just not a good look. A lot of us will depend on the genetic merit of your herd, that drive to produce milk, which is, you know, whether you've got high-producing Holstein Frisian overseas genetics or whether you've got a more humble Kiwi cross cow who, who may be more than happy to agree with you to dr- that it's time to draw off. So lots of different factors there and we won't go into too much more about that. But I know that a lot of you accept that it's hard to stop this condition loss and on that basis you will feed cows a lot better in late lactation so cows have a little bit of a buffer if you'd like so that they can lose a tiny bit of condition through dry off but still be in a very acceptable cow condition and that's great that you're planning for that or otherwise others of you may come up with other um, smart ideas around how to dry off without losing a lot of live weight and body condition score that may involve low protein feeds that we'll touch on at the end of this podcast or other ways you know that it may be that because your cows have already dried themselves off you don't actually have to underfeed them much because they've dried themselves off anyway and that's genetic merit, late lactation management, many moving parts there. Now aside from uh, the unintended consequence of condition or body condition loss through dry off, unfortunately another unintended consequence of drying off cows may be that if we feed cows a low amount of nutrients, energy, protein and, and other nutrients, 
either through reduced amount of feed offered and or through feeding low energy density feeds, so the equivalent of us just eating a lot of salad and, and not much else, is that if cows do mobilise quite a bit of condition quite quickly, same would be said for us if we crash diet too hard, is that we can compromise the functionality of the immune system of our cows or indeed us if, if we lose too much weight too quick. So from the cow's point of view, this could show up potentially in worst case in that we actually increase risk of um, mastitis or indeed other disease processes during the early dry period. So whilst we're trying to dry them off to reduce risk of mastitis, the, the true irony is if we do this too abruptly and too hard through underfeeding, we can actually increase risk of mastitis. And I remember reading about this many years ago with a paper written by well-known Kiwi dairy researcher Scott McDougall that most of you in New Zealand will have heard of at some stage in your dairy and careers. And he and his team did some research quite a few years ago that was with in-milk, in uh, first milk heifers actually, drying them off at the end of their first lactation, where they looked at different ways to dry them off using hay, um, thin, you know, just a thin strip of, strip of grass and bits and pieces. And abrupt, hard line dry off actually increased risk of mastitis early in the dry period. And Scott's team wasn't entirely sure why this might have been occurring, but they presumed, and, and I think rightly so, was that the nutritional stress resulting from a really sudden drop in nutrient intake might just give the immune system a bit of a hard time. So if you have got a case of subclinical mastitis sitting there and out of necessity we've had to go the selective dry cow approach, getting away from the very blunt approach of, of blanket dry cow therapy, that the immunocompromise from just underfeeding, severe underfeeding, can compromise the immune system that had otherwise been keeping on top of your subclinical case of mastitis. And in fact, that blows out to an early dry period case of uh, mastitis. What's actually causing this? Well, if cows go through a short period of negative energy balance before dry off, in other words, they're still trying to make milk, and yet we've greatly reduced the amount of nutrients on offer to them, that state of negative energy balance will result in a period of reduced glucose availability, not only to the udder, which was a good thing we're trying to do, remember, but also to other body tissues. And now, unfortunately, a reduced supply of glucose to body tissues and, well, including the udder, but also other body tissues, can actually reduce the ability of the immune system to respond to the presence of uh, unwanted bacteria or other microorganisms that would otherwise damage the tissues within the body of the cow. So that's not really ideal, that um, drop in glucose, if it's really severe. Yes, it'll dry cows off abruptly if we underfeed cows. But, uh, you know, yeah, we might reduce the ability for the cow to, to mount an immune response to disease. As well as that, if we have a negative energy balance period through dry off, that's a, a period, a prolonged period of a deep negative energy balance, we can also see increased um, concentrations of other sorts of metabolites, in the blood of cows when, when they're losing a lot of weight um, through drive. And this includes things like cortisol, that's the stress hormone, non-esterified fatty acids or NEFAs, or beta-hydroxybutyrate, um, BHB, BHOB, whatever you want to call it. Now, all, each of these metabolites in their own particular way can also mess with the ability of the immune system to respond to um, keeping on top of unwanted pathogens in the body of the cow. Sometimes the process is that the ability of the white cells aren't able to function and, and to knock out bacteria and the like. And so, yeah, we... we Long story short, we need to be careful. Prolonged periods of real underfeeding of cows or feeding absolute rubbish feed that's got hardly any nutrients in it because that will dry cows off, but A, it'll um, result in cows mobilising too much body conditions, which is hard to put back on over the dry period if you've got a short dry period. But also this um, immunosuppression and the inability of cows to fight diseases they need to be. And as well as that, if we severely underfeed cows or just feed them rubbish feed that's got hardly any nutrients in it, these cows will be genuinely hungry. They'll probably be vocalising, like bellowing and stomping around and showing other signs suggestive of stress. Not ideal for the cow's well-being from a welfare point of view. 
And that's something in this modern day and age that we do not want to be doing. We don't want to see that. We don't want our cows that we love dearly to be doing that. And we don't want any public perceptions to be drawn that we've pushed these cows too hard through dry off. So before we leave this topic around um, immune functionality through dry off, this is probably another topic that you've already covered with your own vet at your dry off consult. But clearly we need to be talking with your vet around the trace mineral status of the herd well before you dry cows off. Now, chances are in late lactation you've already been monitoring, and this is particularly a New Zealand thing, to be monitoring through um, liver samples from cows that have gone away as cull cows or perhaps some blood sampling of cows remaining on farm to check the status of your various minerals. And specifically for dry off, we're thinking here about copper and selenium. Now, through dry-off, if we do have a handful of cows that mobilise a bit of weight and maybe we're compromising their immune system, we need to make sure that they have adequate levels specifically of copper, selenium, potentially also iodine, because iodine and selenium kind of work in together to function really well to help cows fight disease. So do have that conversation with your own vet about not only potentially monitoring um, or certainly covering through adding, adding to feed or direct treatment of cows, those nutrients to head through dry off, just to make sure that immune system is working really, really well. Hopefully it's not getting too knocked around because we've got a good approach to dry off, but also um, you know, just making sure the trace minerals are there too. Hey, we're well, moving into a third approach around nutritional strategies to help cows reduce the milk synthesis through dry off. Remembering number one was the total amount of feed reduced, number two was the nutrient density of the feed uh, offered to cows. The third potential role um, of nutrition here is to focus on reducing levels of just one specific nutrient, and that is the dietary protein content of feeds. Is there an opportunity through feeding higher amounts of a very low protein feed, in this case we're going to use maize silage as an example, might that way be an uh, alternate approach to reducing the amount of feed on offer or feeding very low quality feeds such as straws and um, poor quality baleage? Well look, I know certainly here in New Zealand um, over the last 20 years or so, there have been a whole range of different ideas that, to be honest, have been predominantly led by some of our leading farmers and uh, local nutritionists that have been working in the space for a long time, using maize silage fed at higher rates, like higher feeding rates, to sufficiently dilute down the entire dietary crude protein content to the point that cows start to dry themselves off, even though they're still eating a lot of energy to maintain or minimise reduction in, in cow body condition score. So that's the broad principles of it, keeping the energy intake up to cows, but reducing the amount of dietary protein. Now, we are going to discuss this just because we agreed at the beginning of this podcast and also um, partway through the previous podcast that it's nice to know what good looks like and then we can make a decision about the practicalities of getting to where we need to get to. And good looks good for cows if we can um, try and reduce or, or minimise or even stop the amount of body condition score loss when cows dry off. That said, this protein approach may, you can fast forward this bit or, or, or drop off the podcast now if this is never going to be an option for you, but hopefully for some of you that may be able to change your systems, not this season, next season, but maybe in the longer term, you might be able to lean into the system to help particularly cows of high genetic merit to dry off without losing a lot of weight. Those of you that are open to different systems, you might look to a maize silage-based system, but also in areas in New Zealand where maize silage isn't more commonly grown, for example, South Otago and Southland, this might be uh, whole crop cereal silage, um, but accepting that whole crop cereal silage is not as low in protein as maize silage is, but nonetheless you could look at that as an option. Combined with other low protein feeds, and quite often barley straw features here, I guess, is one option here because it's low um, dietary protein, but unfortunately it's also low uh, in energy as well. Before we get into some of the practical things to consider, 
let's briefly just just um, step through why a severe reduction in dietary protein can actually help a cow to dry off. Well, this is where the basics of ruminant nutrition can be used to our advantage, and that is understanding why dietary protein and how dietary protein can drive milk production. So I guess going back to basics is, and to explain why the theory around very low protein um, diets can help dry cows off is that when we, from a, a diet formulation point of view, so I guess this is putting my uh, my dairy nutrition hat on, when we're formulating a diet for you, and typically this is high PMR um, or TMR herds, but it's good to illustrate it, we formulate a diet based on the maximum amount of milk that is supported by the diet's energy content and by the diet's protein content. So bear with me on this. I'm trying not to make it too complicated. But I guess firstly, when we look at what we call the first limiting nutrient, what aspects of the diet, is, the first limiting nutrient in the diet is going to be the first thing that stops a cow from producing milk. Now, we almost exclusively here in New Zealand talk about energy intake being the first limiting nutrient. So if we don't have enough energy, as megajoules of metabolizable energy eaten per day, energy becomes the first limiting nutrient and the cow reduces her milk production. Um, reduction in energy intake is, of course, the most common way that New Zealand dairy farmers, and probably internationally as well, dry cows off. What about protein? Well, here in New Zealand, we're, we're very fortunate for most of uh, New Zealand to have temperate pastures. So they're your C3 grasses and white and red clovers, so typically rye grasses, red and white clovers, as the predominant feed base here in New Zealand. Now, because temperate grasses, specifically ryegrass and clovers, contain a huge amount of protein, it's actually quite unusual for protein to become the first limiting nutrient under New Zealand conditions. What do I mean by protein being the first limiting nutrient? What, what we mean by this is that we assume that energy is not limiting for milk production, but rather protein levels in the diet are too low. And what happens with low-protein diets, there's a reduced supply of what we call metabolizable protein arriving at the intestines of the cow. And metabolizable proteins made up of a combination of rumen bypass protein, protein that doesn't get broken down in the rumen, and of course, microbial protein that's manufactured in the rumen. So if we have things going on, like there's not enough protein in the diet as bypass protein, and likely combined with not enough rumen degradable protein to support microbial protein manufacture, the net effect is, is that even though there's heaps of energy in the system supporting milk, if we have a deficiency of metabolizable protein arriving at the intestines, there's not going to be enough amino acids being made available for the milk secretory tissue in the udder to make milk protein. So the udder, even though there's plenty of glucose arriving to make lactose, there's not enough amino acids to support enough milk protein production. So even though you'd think, oh, well, the cow will still do the same litres but um, end up with a low milk protein test, it's more likely that the milk protein test will stay the same and there will be reduced litres of milk produced, even in the presence of ample energy. I guess it's a different strategy and it has been used successfully under New Zealand conditions. To be fair, sometimes we can create an occasional MP deficient situation and cows of very high genetic merit might still decide to try to mobilise body tissue, specifically muscle tissue, to meet the demands for amino acids. But on average, most sort of Joe, average New Zealand dairy cows will react to a low-protein diet by starting to reduce milk production and instead partition energy towards live weight gain while she's still milking. And the same principle therefore applies to a low-protein diet fed during the last week to 10 days of lactation where we drop protein down 
we reduce metabolizable protein supply to the intestines and therefore cows partition strongly to keeping weight on backs or gaining weight and less into the vat. So moving on, we've talked about maize silage. How much do we need to feed to cows as a proportion of the diet to actually achieve a sufficiently low protein diet for late lactation cows? Well, as we mentioned, with our temperate pastures um, that can still in autumn contain 25% crude protein or more, this can make this approach not particularly practical for many of our farms, unless you're running what we define in New Zealand as a System 5 farm, which is classed as a, a relatively high input farm in terms of supplementary feeds. And even then, if you've got a proportion of the diet as good quality leafy pasture, even then that pasture may prevent you from doing the low-protein strategy in late lactation. So, yeah, it just depends on, on the quality of the grass and the quantity of grass that's going in alongside your low dietary protein feed. For almost all New Zealand cows, through dry-off, MP intake is really limiting for milk production. It's almost exclusively that pathway of making ME limiting for milk production. So the approach of low protein is not for everyone. Um, it is fraught with a few challenges that we'll talk about specifically around very high rates of maize silage because there are a few tips and tricks that farmers I've worked with over the years have, have shown to me and talked um, through how they've, they've beaten these challenges. But there's probably a few tips and tricks to work through. The other thing too is that Essentially, if you're going to try this approach, I'd suggest that you engage a qualified ruminant nutritionist or dairy nutritionist to see how this dietary protein situation may work or may not work at your place. Ideally, your nutritionist will be encouraging you to do quite a bit of feed testing. So you might check the protein levels of your maize silage. Typically, that will be between 7 to 9% crude protein, but you know, sometimes it may be a bit higher or, or usefully it may be a bit lower protein than that. But also feed testing the other feeds that you would be intending to feed along with high rates of maize silage through dry-off. If, for example, your pastures are 28% crude protein and you're still going to feed a third of the diet um, as pasture and the rest is maize, you may not get your levels of protein overall in the diet down low, sufficiently low enough to um, rely on MP or metabolizable protein becoming your first limiting nutrient. So typically if you are going to look at high rates of maize silage to dry off, it's something not to do spur of the moment. It will take a lot of thought and forward planning ahead, including defining the amounts of feed through feeding high, high rates of maize silage and some of the practicalities of securing enough maize silage in a cost-effective manner to, to undertake this. So let's finish up this latest podcast with an overall kind of big-picture planning uh, strategy approach for drying off from a nutritional point of view. Now, to optimise the chance of a feeding strategy helping you through drying off, really you probably want to be planning this 12 to 15 months ahead of dry off so that you can just get all your proverbial ducks in a row to make sure that you have the right types of feed on hand. And in terms of who do you need on your team to help with the planning, well first up remember to lean firstly on your veterinarian because he or she will already be involved uh, with your dry, your dry cow and teat sealant discussions around um, drying off and all the other best practices approaches. So uh, obviously they'll be on farm anyway, helping you with that, so Mars will engage them to help and, and put their two cents worth in with your overall planning as well. Like, you know, many heads uh, make make good decisions. And of course, not forgetting your farm consultant who may be running your feed budgets and all your qualified dairy nutritionist to discuss things around, you know, they'll be able to potentially model with a feed formulation program, ME and MP as first limiting nutrients and stuff like that. So good to have good people around you to, before you sort of engage on a totally different approach to nutrition for drying off. But as far as overall planning stuff, let's wrap this up with, with the key points. When you're looking at drying off, ideally you're going to be well in advance, months if not a year or more, around feed budgeting. Yep, 
it's an, a it's a boring thing and compare it to cash flow budgeting it's it's a necessary evil quite often as soon as you do you feed budget it's out of date and everything else but nonetheless you know you can't manage without anything without planning ahead you do need to get the, the feed budgeting right we need to look at the right types of feeds that may or may not fit your system it may be that may silage isn't for you you're a system two or a system one and your approach to drying off is going to be a combination of reduced levels of feeding and feeding some low-energy, bulky feeds like hay or straw or poor-quality baleage. So you want to be securing those feeds, understanding where they're going to be coming from, and having enough of those feeds on hand in a timely manner for dry-off. If you think you want to feed more bulky feeds, you know, these high-fibre feeds than what you do in other years because you'd like to see the cows a bit more settled through dry-off, Again, we need to be able to secure enough of these types of feeds for feeding potentially before, at and after dry-off. So ramping up the feeding of these low nutrient-dense feeds, starting before dry-off and then ramping them down the other side. And these cows can certainly eat you out of house and home um, if we're feeding quite high rates of low nutrient-dense feeds. So you really want to do your planning and just look at what this means for your winter feed budget and then spring through calving um, the following spring because we don't want to end up with a, a really cool idea about how to dry off and to be feeding cows more feed if we just create a big hole, I suppose, in your stash of feeds, whether that be low nutrient-dense feeds for wintering or maize silage for spring planting or whatever. Number two, um, around dry-off planning, creating a pasture area to dry off on. Now, we mentioned this briefly in the previous podcast about how what we want is an area that is going to provide more cow comfort by allowing them more lying down space, uh, more square metres per cow from a social point of view, reducing social stresses on cows. And typically this is not about taking the top paddock or paddocks at the top of your pasture wedge with the highest average pasture cover to dry off on. Number one is because there's a lot of pasture in, in these top of the wedge paddocks, there's a lot of feed there, a big bulk of feed. So we're going to have to have quite a small area, square metres per cow to dry off on that area and not ideal from a social stress point of view. As well, those top of the wedge um, pastures are probably going to be nice, high quality, high protein feed. And if we dry off on those feeds that contain a lot of protein, we're going to just push metabolizable protein and keep pushing milk as we're trying to dry them off. So even if we're not relying strictly on a low protein approach to dry off, there's no point giving them even more protein well over above what they need even for late lactation, let alone for um, low volumes of milk through dry off. So it could be that... For example, the last week to 10 days with your milkers, or certainly the last week, you leave higher post-grazing residuals than normal. Normally you might be cleaning up paddocks down to 1450 or 1500 kilograms dry matter per hectare. Instead, you may choose to leave behind 18 or even 1900 residuals behind the milkers. And then, as you're drying off, we bring the drying off cows, or recently dried off cows, back to those areas and we chew those 1,800 residuals down to, you know, what depends on what you're targeting and, and if that paddock needs chewing out or not. So it could be down to 1,200, even 1,100 kilograms dry matter per hectare uh, just to chew that paddock out. So the benefits for that is because there's a pre-grazing mass of 1,800 instead of 2,800 or even 3,000, we, ha we can allow much bigger areas, uh, square metres per cow, that's bloody awesome. As well, because the milkers have hopefully picked out the best and the high quality, high energy, high protein part of the sward and we're down to the pseudo stem of the ryegrass and hopefully any clovers that were still there have been eaten by the milkers, we're down to a lower quality of pasture and because pseudo stem, sort of the white part, the curled up leaves of the, the bottom of the plant contain less green material, it's more the white, you know, post-chewed out looking area, that will contain less protein. And again, even if we're not relying 100% on reduced protein to dry off, getting rid of any protein is useful. 
Most importantly, that stretched out, happy cows, less social stresses with more square metres per cow. If it is wet through dry off, you're less likely cows spread out on these bigger areas for drying off to to pug everything up than if you had them on a narrow strip of grass feeding off to dry cows at the top of the pasture wedge. So just a thought around planning ahead in that week before dry off for, for pastures. Uh, number three for planning what about sourcing different types of feeds to dry off on them? We've already talked a fair bit about this. So any feed that you're looking to dry off on, whether that be pasture, chewed out pasture, like prove it to yourself that 1800 residual cut down to 1000 is going to be a lot lower than pre-grazing mass at higher covers. Cut it and convince yourself, yeah, it's definitely low, lower feed quality. What about your other conserved feeds? Certainly... I suppose at the extreme of where you may be chasing a low protein strategy for dry off, it's worth testing all of your feeds. Anything that you'd be feeding to dry off your maize silage, maybe supported by baleage, maybe supported by barley straw, feed test that, just convince yourself and then your qualified dairy nutritionist can actually put your feed tests into the feed formulation program and see if we can reach the point that energy is not limiting but metabolizable protein is. Super cool. Your, your dairy nutritionist can't do a good job of that modelling without feed testing. So not only feed testing, but of course the other side around your dry off feeds is actually looking at your feeds because feed testing, good as it is, doesn't beat sort of running all these feeds through your fingers and having a good look. For example, you might not be doing the low protein approach, but you want some rough quality baleage to dry off on. And feed test says, yeah, it's pretty high end if it's low ME, that's primo. But when you actually cut the wrap and get down to the net and, and you cut through that and you look at it and you go, oh my goodness, this is actually really mouldy. So yeah, the low energy density and, and low protein is good with this baleage to dry off on. But what about the mould? You've ticked one box. Yep, yep, that's low quality feed, but it's mouldy. So clearly the key risk here for drying off cows is the risk of fungal abortion and sometimes accompanied by secondary fungal pneumonias that are obviously catastrophic for a cow. Um, and the same can be said for, for water-damaged and mouldy haze as well. And so anything that's got mould in it, it might tick the box from a nutritional point of view for dry-off, but we cannot feed it to cows because cows at dry-off are typically sort of that getting towards um, the end of second trimester and beginning of the third trimester of pregnancy. So they are very vulnerable to the effects of mould on feeds through dry-off. If, if in doubt, get your vet to have a look at it, send some photos. So this is the importance of not only feed testing, but physically looking at your feeds. We've mentioned straw um, as byproducts, which again are really useful to help dry cows off. It's sort of the equivalent of the salad for us on the diet bulks cows up. It's hard for them to extract a lot of energy from these feeds. In terms of the amounts of straw, at the end of the day, because they're very high NDF or neutral detergent fibre, there's only a certain amount of straw that cows will eat before NDF starts to make them feel too full and they, they can't eat enough. And if we feed too much straw, not only will they self-regulate and not eat a huge amount of it and end up wasting a lot but also it's almost too lower energy density and we can get very hungry cows that feel hungry their brain says they're hungry even though their rumen is full so straw as part of a dry off diet's good not a hundred percent of a diet they simply won't eat enough and they'll strip a huge amount of condition but it's certainly a good filler you know colder weather through dry off for spring calving cows helps keep them settled and even though they may sadly waste quite a bit of your straw from a cow comfort point of view it's lovely for them to snuggle onto on, on cold autumn early winter nights so as far as your selection of straws we'll talk about barley quickly very useful for part of a diet for dry off but it needs to be lovely, bright, yellow, clean-looking barley straw and be free of any of what we call field fungies, which is sort of your, your grey, pink or white discoloration in years where the harvest has been delayed, suggesting fungal damage. Now, that type of fungal damage won't necessarily cause fungal abortion, but because of the presence of the fungi, the cows aren't going to be very keen to eat that straw and are more likely to reject it compared to bright, yellow, clean-looking straw. Wheat straw, I guess in theory, from a nutritional point of view, fits the bill as a potential dry-off feed. But on average, wheat straw is a lot sharper and pointier. It's not as soft as barley straw is. So typically, if wheat straw is a lot cheaper than barley straw, and say, we'll use it, but you're going to have to accept a much greater degree of wastage 
just because they've got to be very hungry to eat it and, and often it ends up just being, being laying on and, and trodden on. Ryegrass straw. Now, this is a very useful feed, I think, for drying off if you are near to a, a ryegrass seed production area, uh, wherever you're farming. Ryegrass is actually, <clears throat> from a quality point of view, probably closer to a rougher quality hay than the cereal straw, the likes of uh, barley and wheat. Depending on what type of ryegrass straw it is, because there's a big variation in quality ryegrass straw, depending on whether it's from a perennial ryegrass or an Italian ryegrass or an annual ryegrass. So if in doubt, feed test it and go and have a look at it and just see what you've actually got. Now, specifically about high rates of maize silage, if and only if um, you decide to have a look at this approach, is you do need to be careful feeding very high rates of maize silage as a proportion of the diet. And again, I'd probably talk to a qualified dairy nutritionist about um, this approach because of some issues, not only nutritionally, but around, for example, the risk of rumen acidosis if we feed a lot of maize silage as a, as a dry-off mechanism. So again, a, a really good nutritionist will be able to talk you through this in more detail, but it may be that you need to split higher rates of maize, you know, like up to two-thirds or more of a dieter's maize across twice or even three times a day feeding. Just one is that the cows are more likely to eat those higher rates at, at multiple feeds a day. And as well, if we split it over several feeds, we possibly won't quite get that same all-in-one sitting dump of lots of starch and also preformed acid in the maize silage all in one sitting. Typically a maize silage based approach for drying off, chasing that low protein approach, you'll certainly look to include straws in with the diet for that reason for maintaining good rumen function. And as well as that, again, you'll need to get some advice around increasing the requirements for magnesium, calcium and sodium when you feed high rates of maize just because maize is um, very low in those three key macro minerals. We're in the home straight now on nutrition and drying off of dairy cows. Kind of kept probably the most important part of the dairy cow diet for last. Maybe this should have been mentioned first, but we did touch briefly on this in episode number 30, the first part of this two-part series. And that is, of course, through the dry off period, the need for lovely, fresh, tasty water for the cows. Never, ever, please do not withhold water as part of a dry-off strategy. It is inappropriate. It will increase risk of things going wrong through dry-off. And frankly, it's a particularly cruel thing to do to cows. And we must not ever consider withholding water from dairy cows, please. So, yes, we need plenty of lovely, fresh, tasty water for your cows at all stages of the dry-off process. Just make sure that if you feed a lot of low-quality things like poor baleage, straw, hay to cows through dry-off to reduce nutrient density, like good work on that, just remember that those feeds compared to pasture contain not very much water. So if we look at straw and hay... That might be dry matters, you know, 85, 88, even 90% dry matter. And therefore, when they eat that feed, they don't get any water or very little water from that feed. So if we have a poor water supply, like you find that um, pasture-fed cows, the troughs are slow to refill, you've got cows queuing for water with pasture, which contains a lot of water, hey, it's going to be super risky to feed high rates of drier feeds and you may have to revise your water system or make sure you dry off on parts of the farm where flow rate and water access by cows is better. So just a thought, take home here is that these low energy, high fibre feeds or even maize silage contain less water than pasture. So put your stock water supply under a bit of pressure so we don't want cows running out of uh, a stock water through dry off. Summing that point up loud and clear, repetitious I know is we must never withhold water from cows through the dry-off process. Well team, that's us done and dusted for another The Room and Room podcast. Recapping, changing the diet of cows before, through and after dry-off is a key and very important strategy if we want to achieve 
what good looks like in terms of uh, getting cows comfortably and efficiently stepped down from the milking herd into the dry cow herd and making sure that both the udder and the cow do have a good break in preparation for the next lactation. Now in the podcast we discussed uh, the range of different approaches to drying off, you'll recall including a reduction of total amounts of feed on offer uh, and or the use of low nutrient dense high fibre feeds, your baleage, your, your poor quality baleage, your hay, straw and the like. We also touched uh, in, in the last part of this podcast on a, an approach used I know by some of you, not for everyone, but some of you who chase the opportunity to use low-protein feeds, specifically maize silage, to create diets where metabolizable protein is the first limiting nutrient. So the, the lack of protein rather than lack of energy helps to, to dry cows off. But look, that's, uh, that's us for this podcast. And just like to thank you again for joining us, uh, whatever you've been up to while you've been multitasking, listening in, whether you've been doing some tractor work, hosing down the yard, milking cows, whatever you've been doing, I hope you've had a, an enjoyable time adding in the podcast to your day. Do um, look back over some of the earlier podcasts. If this drying off podcast has stimulated interest in the basics of nutrition, for example, go and listen in to the first two podcasts to learn more about the basics of ruminant nutrition, just whatever uh, you're interested in. But in the meantime, hey, my name's Charlotte Westwood, and on behalf of myself, and PGG Rights and Seeds, our loyal sponsors. We hope that you have an awesome day out and about whatever you've been up to. Cheers. Cheers.